0: Well, good morning, Veritas. My name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, it's going to be fun this morning to, to continue to work our way through the Apostles' Creed. And, you know, in our study of the Apostles' Creed, one of the things we've been talking about is not just a knowledge of what we believe, but of why we believe it. And it, we kind of call that doctrine. That's a word that Mark and Jeff have both thrown out there. And doctrine is really a way of kind of giving a summary on what a given um, topic of the Bible, right, says, right? So we have the doctrine of man, the doctrine of sin, the doctrine of God, the doctrine of Christ, these different doctrines. Um, Well, if you're interested in studying about Christian doctrine more, some of you know that I'm in the process of um, working on my doctorate, and as part of my dissertation, I'm designing a class that will be offered this fall. It's going to be a 10-week class on the study of Christian doctrine, but not just on kind of knowing the different facts about Christianity, but about how we can put this into practice in our life. So we'll take a deep dive into some specific doctrines. We're also going to look at how we can practice doctrine in our life in three specific ways. Uh, Hospitality, we're going to look at. Forgiveness, and then rest or Sabbath keeping. So if you're interested in that, uh, keep that on your radar. Again, it's going to be a 10-week class, September. It'll get done before Thanksgiving. Not strictly men's ministry. It's open to anybody. Um, because it's part of my dissertation, I would just ask that you're really committed to it if, if it's something you decide to do. So we'll get more details out that, uh, about that out in a little bit. Um, as we continue our study, though, here, we're going to linger for our second of three weeks on Jesus Christ. We had Jesus Christ last week. We'll focus on Christ this week and then next week as well. And we have that phrase, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. You read that phrase, and it just begs the question, why did Jesus have to die? Why did Jesus have to die? You know, we we certainly ask it, right, as human beings, why all the blood? Why the excruciating pain? Why the horrible means of death? And Jesus asked that same question as well. You know, he's in the garden of Gethsemane the Eve before his crucifixion. And he says, my father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Dad, if there's any way I can get out of this, there's got to be some other way, dad. I'll take it. But of course there wasn't. So why did Jesus have to die? Well, we're going to fill out the answer to that question as we go this morning. But for now, this is the answer I'm going to give you. This is kind of your big idea for this morning. Someone had to pay Why did Jesus have to die? Because someone had to pay. You know, two weeks ago, Mark talked about how God, he's created all human beings in his image. And as being created in the image of God, there are certain innate desires that we have as human beings. And one of those desires is that we all long for justice, right? We all long for justice. I mean, this is this has been something that's been really kind of at the forefront in the last several years in our culture and our society. We know what justice looks like, and we have a pretty good idea of what injustice looks like. I mean, when the murder of powerless, unborn children who cannot defend themselves happens, we have a sense that that's injustice. That's not right. And when Roe versus Wade got overturned a couple of weeks ago, I realized that didn't solve everything, but we, we had a sense that we're, we're inching toward justice when that happens, right? When a police officer kneels on a man's throat to the point where he dies, you can't help but look at that and say, that's wrong. That's injustice. And when Derek Chauvin got convicted for the murder of George Floyd, we knew that it, at least in some sense of the word, justice had been done. I mean, if the judge in that courtroom kind of looks at Derek Chauvin, obviously committing a murder, and says, you know what? You're free to go. I don't want to tie you up any longer. You're free to enjoy the rest of your life. We say that's injustice. That's not right. We can't let that happen. That cry for justice, it's everywhere. It's been all over the past several years. If nobody pays, it's not justice, right? If nobody pays, it's not justice. Someone had to pay. So let's go back to that courtroom scene. Just let me offer you a hypothetical, okay? Let's pretend that you're the judge in the courtroom, and you have a big dilemma potentially on your hands. On the one hand, you know that your responsibility is to uphold justice. So you you want to ensure that people act in accordance with what has been deemed good and right by the law, sometimes morally right. And if people don't act in accord with what is good and right, then you're Your responsibility is to punish them, right, to ensure that justice prevails. I mean, breaking the law has real consequences, right? Things get destroyed. People get killed. Relationships get broken. Hearts get scarred in some unimaginable ways. So you know that leaving the wrong unpunished is not an option. But now let's imagine that you as the judge in that courtroom, you know that justice isn't the only value that you're operating on. You value love as well. Now you know that that love isn't opposed to justice. Sometimes the most loving thing to do is punish a wrong that has been done. And in this particular case that you have, you deem that the death sentence is the proper punishment. That's the only thing that will let justice be had in this situation. But you love the person on the stand so much that you, you don't want their life to be lost by handing down the death penalty to them. So on the one hand, you want to be just. But on the other hand, you want to justify the guilty person on the stand. It's quite a dilemma. What do you do? I wouldn't want to be in that situation. But that's not all that different from the situation God is in with human beings. And and that leads to the necessity of the atonement. The necessity of the atonement is God's justice, okay? Look at Romans 3, starting in 25. God presented him, that's Jesus, as an atoning sacrifice in his blood received through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be righteous and declare righteous the one who has faith in Jesus. Some translations say so that he could be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. Now, to atone, you, you might think of it as make amends for something. Uh, maybe a little bit better way to think of it in this situation is to pl- uh, maybe to supply satisfaction, right? God's wrath against sin, his punishment against sin, it has to go somewhere, right? It's got to be satisfied. And it went to Jesus on the cross, God is perfectly holy. There's not one bit of sin, one bit of law breaking in him. And because of this, he has to uphold justice. If God is not just, then he's no no longer God as we know him. But in his great love, he also desires to justify us, to kind of get us off the hook for our sin. So that we might be brought near to him. And this leads to the cause of the atonement. Cause of the atonement is God's great love. The atonement was necessary because of God's justice, but what caused the atonement is God's great love. Just flip your Bibles one page to Romans 5, starting in verse 7. For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, let's be clear at this point. The atonement actually wasn't necessary, okay? There's nothing in me or in you that said, God, you have to save us, right? We deserve that. But once God, in his great love, decided that he would save some, then this is the only way. This was the only way through Jesus Christ on the cross. We're going to pack this a little bit more as we go, but before we do, let's kind of unpack these specific phrases of the creed. So first we have suffered under Pontius Pilate. Suffered. Jesus Christ suffered. God the Son intimately knew all the pain. Physical, mental, psychological, spiritual, emotional, that that human beings could inflict on him. And his suffering didn't start with the passion narrative, right? His suffering started The moment that he descended from heaven and came to earth as a human being. He left all the comforts and all the glory of heaven. He was exposed in his humanness to a lot of the same discomforts and sufferings we are, right? Things like fatigue and thirst and hunger, but also things like humiliation and mockings and being disrespected throughout his life. And then under Pontius Pilate, kind of seems out of place. Why is this guy included? seems like he's not that important in the grand scheme of things. But one of the reasons why the writers of the creed include it is to locate this event in human history. The passion of Jesus Christ is an actual historical event. It happened at a particular place and in a particular time. And that phrase, under Pontius Pilate, it, it also points to two sources of Jesus' horrific death. Of course it was God's plan. We know that. But it was also man's doing. It was your doing and it was my doing. It was our sin that put him on the cross. And then we have was crucified. Death by crucifixion was the most horrible way to die. The Roman soldiers that carried it out were professionals in not just killing, but in inflicting pain. And the victim on the cross would die by suffocation. They, they were essentially almost forced to inflict a death by suffocation upon themselves. There's the flogging that happened beforehand. Right, they would get whipped, and, and there were chunks of Jesus' back, his flesh would be torn away. That was certainly painful in itself. And then there was, of course, the nailing to the cross. And let's not call them nails; they're stakes. Nails as we know them would never have held Jesus to the cross. There were stakes pounded into his wrists and his legs just above his ankles. And when he was on the cross, he was forced to support most of the weight with his arms. But that would cause excruciating pain because it would tear his his median nerves out of his muscles and cause shooting pain up his arms, into his neck and head, down his torso. And when his arms became too weak he would relax and try to put some weight on his legs. But that would cut off his airway and he couldn't breathe. So he would push up with his legs, of course causing excruciating pain in his whole lower body just to get another gasp. And then as his arms got weaker and weaker and weaker. He couldn't hold himself up anymore. And so the breaths got fainter and fainter and fainter until he could no longer breathe. And then he died. And as horrible as that was, that might not have been even the most intense pain that Jesus felt. The most intense pain he probably felt was the emotional and psychological pain of being torn apart from his father and bearing the guilt for our sin. He started feeling it, of course, in the garden the night before. He said he was deeply grieved to the point of death. And then he felt the full impact on the cross. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? It's okay to sit in that for a minute. That should be uncomfortable to hear that. And then we have dead, buried, and he descended into hell. Now, the three parts of this phrase, the dead, the buried, the descended into hell, essentially, they they drive home a single point. What happened three days later, it was not a resuscitation. It was a resurrection. Jesus actually died. Life left his body physically as it does ours when we die. And this is important because if Jesus had never died, then he never conquered the power of sin. And then when we're united to Christ by faith, we cannot experience the power of sin being put to death in us. But he did die. And so we can experience that power. And then he descended into hell. How do we make sense out of this? Well, like I said, it's included essentially to make the same point, that Jesus really did die. How do we justify this from the Bible? Well, the Greek word Hades, where we get this word hell, it certainly can refer to hell or the eternal place of torment, but it doesn't always refer to hell. It it like sheol, this word in the Old Testament, you you probably see in the Psalms a lot, they can just refer to the grave or the, kind of the, the state of being dead or this temporary r- realm of the dead. And, you know, on top of that there, there's no evidence in the Bible that Jesus went to hell to the ap- eternal place of torment when he died. So we know that these words, Sheol and Hades, can refer to this temporary realm of the dead. And we know from the Bible, particularly in the Gospel of Luke, that this place, Hades, it included, before Jesus ascended to heaven, both a place of cursing, okay, where people who hadn't put their faith in Jesus Christ went after they died, and it included a place of blessing, a place where people who had put their faith in Jesus Christ went after they died. This is where Jesus went along with the criminal beside him who professed faith after he died. His spirit went there, his body laid in the grave. And after Jesus rose and ascended to heaven, he brought the spirits of the faithfully departed with him to heaven, while the spirits of those who did not have faith in Jesus Christ went to hell. And ever since Jesus ascended, the spirits of the faithfully departed go immediately to heaven to be in the presence of our heavenly father but this leads to the heart of the atonement the heart of the atonement heart of the atonement is substitution the heart of the atonement is substitution the heart of sin is us substituting ourselves for god right we want to try to take the place of god and be master of our lives ruler of our lives, build our own kingdom, do our own will. And because of that, we deserve only God's wrath and death. But the heart of the atonement is God substituting himself for us in Jesus Christ. Probably most succinctly stated in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. He made the one, that's God made Jesus, God made Jesus, who did not know sin, to be sin for us, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. So let's look at what Jesus did and what we did. This is what we brought to the situation. That's it. That's what we brought to the table with God rebellion against God. And Jesus bought perfect obedience which included his suffering and his death. But what do we get and what does Jesus get? Jesus gets our guilt. And I, I don't mean our day-to-day guilt from the ongoing sinner in our lives. That's okay that we experience that guilt. Jesus gets the guilt that would have pronounced us guilty and sentenced us to an eternity apart from God. That's the guilt that Jesus gets while we get forgiveness. What else do we get? While Christ gets our sin, we get his righteousness, as 2 Corinthians 5 says. We get God's mercy. Jesus gets God's wrath. We get life. Jesus gets death. That's the substitution of the atonement. So what does all this mean for us? Well, someone had to pay. So so number one, repent. Repent. Jesus had to pay, so number one, repent, and let him pay for it. Let Jesus pay for it. Let's look at Acts 2. This is one of the beautiful things about the creed. We're not in just one part of the Bible. We're all over the Bible. This creed is so saturated with biblical truth. Acts 2, starting in verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, each one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So he says, you crucified. Now, he's not talking to Pontius Pilate. He's not talking to the Roman soldiers that carried out the crucifixion. So why does he say, you crucified? Well, we alluded to it earlier. It was their sin, it's our sin, it's your sin, that kept Jesus on the cross, that put him there. And notice that he refers to Jesus as Lord and Savior. That's very intentional, Lord and Messiah, right? Messiah is the anointed one, the anointed Savior of the world. That's pretty self-explanatory. Why does he include Lord there? We learned last week from Jeff that 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 word Lord, it means master or ruler of the universe. Veritas, nobody is in hell for sexual immorality. Nobody's in hell for lying or cheating or stealing. The only reason that someone is in hell is for rejecting Jesus Christ as the Lord, the master of their life. He's taking a dig at that right there. And they say, well, we're pierced to the heart, so what should we do next? Well, Peter tells them. He says, repent. That word means to change your mind. You, you change your mind from thinking of yourself as master of your life to thinking of Jesus Christ as the master of your life. It doesn't mean that you go from thinking, no, I'm a pretty good person, to acknowledging that, you know, you make some mistakes, there's some wrongdoings in your life. Repentance is a complete 180 turn. You're going one direction and you turn and you completely go the opposite direction. It's from thinking you're not that bad of a person and you can save yourself to coming face to face with the fact that you are a rebellious enemy of God and you despise the fact that he is king of the universe. And you also acknowledge that you're in desperate need of his mercy and forgiveness because everyone is not saved. Only those who repent and believe are, those who change their minds, are saved. Of course, you know, we as Christians, we practice repentance throughout our Christian lives, our turning away from our daily sin. It it doesn't end until we get to heaven. But what I'm talking about here is you and I's repenting of rejecting Jesus Christ as our Lord. That happens one time in our lives. And after that happens, we're united to Christ in his death and in his life. And after that, there's only one thing left to do. Let Jesus pay it. What God did through Jesus Christ in his life and in his death and resurrection accomplished everything that it ever had to do in order for God to be just and you and I to be justified. There is nothing left to do. There's no penalty left to pay for our sins. The justice of God is satisfied. So let's go back to that that courtroom one more time. Okay, another hypothetical for you. Okay, the defendant is sentenced by the judge for 25 years in prison for crimes committed. The judge deems this is appropriate. Um, This will ensure that justice is done. The penalty is completely paid. The defendant serves the complete sentence, and they get to that day where they get to get out of prison and get on with their life, right? And they say, you know what, I'm just going to hang around a little bit longer. I want to stay in prison a little bit longer. I just want to be absolutely sure that the penalty is paid. So you can can lock the cell door again, and I'm just going to stay here for a while. And you would say that that is absolutely ridiculous, right? That's ridiculous that someone would ever do that. But that's what we often do as Christians, guys. Stop trying to add to Christ's work. With our daily performance, right, we offer sacrifices to God. We inflict penance on ourselves after we sin. The only thing left to do is humbly receive his forgiveness. And here's what that's going to do inside of you. It's going to make you feel absolutely unworthy. You're going to feel totally unworthy to receive it. But you still receive it. And that feeling of, of unworthiness that you feel... You allow that to just propel you into joyful obedience to God. Someone had to pay, so repent and let Jesus pay it. Number two, someone had to pay, so trust. Nothing can get between you and God. Nothing can get between you and God. Let's go Romans 8 for this one. What then are we to say about these these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He did not even spare his own son, but offered him up for us all. How will he not also grant us everything? Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things were more than conquer- conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm persuaded that neither death nor life, neither angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For those who are in Christ, if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, there's absolutely nothing that can get you out of favor with God. No, nothing can tear you apart from his faithful love in your life. But we struggle to believe this. You know, and I struggle to believe this at times. Sometimes I think, man, it'd be really nice if in those times, you know, where life is really hard and it's hard to believe this about God. We, we had some hard evidence that, that he's never going to leave. That, that he's going to kind of come through with what I need. You can imagine a child wanting to know the same thing of their parents. Rightfully so, children so often seek the approval of their parents, right? My kids are always coming up to me, right? Dad, look at this. Dad, let me show you what I did. Dad, let me show you this. And it's such a delight, right? But imagine you're that child. You'd want to know that whatever you did and whatever happened in your life, mom and dad would always be there to love you. Your mom and dad, they they may give you a hug and and tell you they love you every single day. They might even work a a job that they consider miserable to sacrifice, to provide for you your whole life, right? They might even offer you complete forgiveness after you get drunk and total the family car. It's one thing to do those things, but you still might have some doubts, as to their love for you. It's quite another thing if your mom and dad literally took a bullet for you, exchanged their life for yours. The doubts would be removed. They, they love me. I, I don't have any doubts about that. And they're always going to love me. And that's what we have in Jesus Christ. Guys, God didn't start out by just giving you a hug and telling you he loved you. And yeah, I'll just let them wonder what's gonna happen the rest of their lives, right? He went to the top. The greatest form of love he could ever do. How is he not going to do everything else he could do to love you? Guys, fight fight for hopeful trust. Hopeful means optimistic, right? Fight for hopeful trust, especially in the hardest times of your life. When life doesn't work out the way you want it to or the way you think it will, Never doubt God's love for you. You always have hard evidence that God's going to give you everything you need. You just you look to the cross. Remember, we, we said it was an actual historical event. You look to the cross, and you see, there's my proof. It's always there. You can never undo it. And last, someone had to pay, so die daily. It's no longer you who live. Someone had to pay, so die daily. It's no longer you who live. Let's go to Galatians 2, starting in verse 20. I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God. That, that grace, is, it's both the motivation and the power To die to yourself. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died for nothing. So Paul says, I've been crucified. When we become Christians, we're united with Christ in his death, in his crucifixion. And Christ in his death, he conquered the power of sin. So the moment we put our faith in Christ, the power of sin is put to death inside of us. Now that doesn't mean that the action of sin is put to death. We, we, we know all too well of this battle of flesh against spirit, right, in our lives. The, these moments where these sinful desires of our flesh kind of collide with what we know we should do because the Holy Spirit is, is leading us and guiding us and convicting us. So the power of sin is crucified in us, but we are daily crucifying the action of sin in our life. What does that mean? Well, your, your flesh wants this thing, right? Right? It wants to engage in lustful thoughts. It it wants to cut somebody down with your words, right? You want to get somebody back that wronged you. And in that moment where you haven't sinned yet, but your flesh and your spirit are at a crossroads, you don't allow your flesh what it wants to have because you have the power to do that by the Holy Spirit in you. You know, I was mentioning, I'm, on my dissertation now, and and I was working on it last Sunday morning after, well, after the services, Sunday afternoon. I'm typing away, and I'm about 40, 45 pages in, and I I look at my page, and I thought, hmm, there's no citations at the bottom of that page. I, I swear there were at least a couple citations there, and I scroll up, and there's no citations in any page. I thought, wow, I'm about 65, 70 citations deep. What's going on here? Hit undo, that doesn't work. I know autosave is on, but I can't retrieve a previous copy of it. I can't imagine how much time it's gonna take to redo this if I have to do it, right? And when I finally realized that I wasn't gonna retrieve what I would lost, two things I wanted to do. One, I wanted to curse. I thought, man, that could be the most gratifying thing to do right, like that might make everything better right now, if I could just say a really bad word, you know? <laughs> Oh, And then I thought, too. God needs a reprimand right now. God needs a reprimand, like a strong one for me right now. God, you don't know how hard I've been working on this thing. And I don't know quite how this happened, but in that moment where, you know, your, your flesh and the spirit of God meet, I, I just, God, I'm just going to let you crucify that part of my flesh right now. And I was talking to my wife later that day, and I told her what had happened. And I told her that I hadn't cursed. And she said, really? You always curse when that happens. (laughs) It's like, thanks, Karen. Well, that's sanctification for you, right? (laughs) She was more surprised than I was, I think. But understand this, guys. Dying to yourself, it's not about what you're not allowed to do. It's about what Christ has freed you to do. It's miserable if I were to live my whole life with a filthy mouth, with anger every time something went wrong, and questioning God at every turn. That's a miserable way to live life. That's not what Christ freed us to do. So maybe just as a a simple application, just start your day, Lord, I resolve to die to myself today. Just help me to do that, Lord. And you'd be surprised how often God will bring to mind moments and big things and small things where you have an opportunity to die to yourself. Life can be really, really hard. Harder than losing citations on a dissertation. And, you know, sometimes the evil and the suffering that we witness and that we experience ourselves, it can prompt us to ask the question, God, why? You know, why do you allow so many things to go wrong in the world, in my life? Why do you allow so much evil and suffering around us? And we often don't get a complete answer to that question. But we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that part of the answer to that question cannot be this. It cannot be that God is removed and distant from us in our suffering, in our weakness, in our fr- Frustration. That cannot be the answer. That's not an option. He he doesn't just know about your suffering. He doesn't even just care deeply about your suffering. But he entered into it. He took part in it. He participated in it, in his flesh and blood. He took on our suffering and death. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The only right response for us is, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And God is absolutely happy to meet that need. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I I do pray that when we, we allow our hearts and minds to linger on these words, and the biblical truth that goes along with it, we would let it sting. It would be really uncomfortable. It would break our hearts. But thanks be to you, God, that we don't have to stay there with our hearts, with our minds, with our lives. We don't need to ask you for anything right now. We just need to praise you and thank you. I do ask for one thing. I do ask that, that those who, who, who don't call you Lord and Savior right now, that they would see the beauty and the glory and the freedom and the love and the justice in what you've done for us through Jesus Christ on the cross. And you would unite them to your son Jesus Christ in the work that he has done. Lord, help us just to humbly receive. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.